Well, Dr. Al Mohler referenced an article this past week on the briefing in which a philosophy professor was discussing an issue presented by his son. The title of the article was, How to Pray to a God You Don't Believe In. As it turns out, this philosophy professor's son, in the middle of studying for his bar mitzvah, confessed to his father that he simply doesn't believe in God. This was his response, according to the article. The son said, if God was real, he wouldn't let all those people die. He went on to say, God is supposed to care about us. That doesn't seem like you'd let happen. Doesn't seem like something you'd let happen if you cared and could stop it. Well, the writer of the article went on to say that his son was referencing the pandemic, but he could have been talking about the killing of civilians in the Kyiv suburb of Bukha or any number of other atrocities that he's been exposed to in his short life. Certainly, we can all sympathize with the sentiment that this young man expressed and with his father who had to navigate the issue. It appears, however, that the father had no sufficient answer primarily because he doesn't really believe in God. The father, this philosophy professor, went on to explain that he holds to his Jewish faith as a means of connecting with the community and trying to transcend, his, transcend the troubles of the world. Maybe it gives him a bit of a break when he goes to worship, I guess, is the idea. <clears throat> and when I say we can sympathize with this young man, I say that to acknowledge that we've all probably wondered why at some point in our lives. Why is there so much evil in the world? Why are there school shootings? Why are there wars? Again, we're celebrating Memorial Day, thinking about those who gave their lives. Why do we have wars today where civilians are being harmed, having their lives taken or at least significantly uprooted? Why the pandemic and all the lives that have been lost there? Why do we have to watch our loved ones suffer in the hospital with serious illnesses? Why death? If God is supposed to be real, if God is supposed to be good and to care about us and is able to stop it, why doesn't he? We provide a theological term for this kind of argument. We call it the problem of evil. Why is there evil at all? Why so much evil? Why are we so affected by evil in the world if God is good and can stop it? Well, I won't pretend to have the exact answer to all of life's most difficult questions, but I do believe that the word of God... What God has revealed to us in the scriptures through the prophets and the apostles does sufficiently answer these questions. As we return to our study in the book of Philippians, in chapter 3 in particular, we will be able to sufficiently answer the question of why we have things like religion, and what, if anything, does God do about evil, and particularly the evil of death that we all face. Turn with me, if you haven't, to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Last week, we began looking at the section of chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. There, Paul is calling us to set our heart upon the upward call of God in Christ. We looked at the first part of this section last week, and we'll continue and conclude the message this morning. Let's read that section together again. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come before you, we come before your word, and we ask that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful truths from your word. I pray, Father, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the four points of this section that I provided last week, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, we are to consciously pursue the upward call of God in Christ. Verses 15 through 17, we're to collaborate with those who pursue the upward call. In verses 18 and 19, we are to consider the error of those who disregard the upward call. And in verses 20 and 21, we're to consider the ultimate blessing of the upward call of God in Christ. We considered the first two last week. First, we are to consciously pursue the upward call of God in Christ. We were reminded that our final redemption in Christ is multifaceted. When Christ returns or when he calls us home, we're looking forward to the culmination of our faith. We will be like him in every way. We will be like him both in the practical expression of righteousness, but we'll also be like him in our physical appearance as well. We'll get to that later. Concerning the practical expression of righteousness, we know that Jesus is called Jesus Christ the righteous because he lived a righteous life here on earth. We do not always do righteousness as believers, but we have been clothed with his righteousness. We have been given new life in him by faith. Thus, we have been declared righteous in the Lord Jesus. On that day, we will do righteously even as we have been declared righteous. Paul made this clear. And he made it clear that it was his earnest desire to hasten towards that day. He wanted to know Christ in every way possible, even up unto the resurrection from the dead. He was careful to let us know that though he pursued Christ in greater ways today, Paul the Apostle, he said, I have not yet attained to it. I have not arrived. I have not reached any kind of righteous perfection in this life. That was the error of the false teachers. Paul indicated that though he had not attained to a righteous perfection, he still pursued it. He pursued righteousness as a runner sprinting toward the goal in the last leg of a race. He says, I press on. He repeated that multiple times. And that's the idea. I made the point that the reason why the Apostle Paul accomplished all that he did as an apostle was not because he was a perfect man but because he pursued Jesus with every fiber of his being. 
The reality is that our lives should look a certain way if that is our attitude. Our lives should be different. They ought to communicate the gospel, the effect of the gospel. We ought to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We ought to be pursuing the upward call of God in Christ. Second point was encouragement to take time who we spend our time with, who we set aside as much time in the day for. The, the close, our close inner circle of friends, the people who we allow ourselves to be influenced with ought to be people who are also pursuing this. That's what spiritual maturity is. Spiritual maturity has the same attitude that Paul expressed, that we are pressing toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And so we ought to surround ourselves with people who do likewise. Because we need to have that encouragement. Paul said, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the pattern you have in us and imitate their faith. Well, as we continue in our text, yes, we are to consciously pursue the upward call of God in Christ. Yes, we are to collaborate with those who pursue the upward call. But we're also given another warning again in verses 18 and 19 is where we pick up. We are encouraged to consider the error of those who disregard the upward call of God in Christ. Paul says again in those two verses, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the pattern you have in us, he said, for many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Look at these, not those. Remember, chapter 3 began with a warning. He said there, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. I believe this is the same group that he's coming back to. Here he tells us that they are many, thus the urgency with which he gives this warning. There are many who fit this bill, many who could potentially be a source of ruin to the faith of the believers at Philippi. Many we need to avoid, many who today fill pulpits. And have blogs and preach and teach these kinds of things who we need to be wary of. Paul says we need to steer clear of this group because they are enemies of the cross of Christ. He doesn't exactly specify how they're enemies or what he means that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. In all likelihood, he's just simply referring to the conduct of their lives, the way they walk. He says they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We've talked about that idea of what it means to walk before, that idea of how we walk is kind of an, uh, uh, an analogy for the course of our lives, the conduct of our lives, how we conduct ourselves. And again, he said, Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the pattern you have in us, but be careful of those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, we know them by their lives. We know them by their fruit, Jesus said elsewhere. Well, what is it about their life that indicates that they are enemies of the cross of Christ? He mentions a number of things in quick succession. He says their end is destruction. There appears to be a bit of a play on words here. The word for end is also used in other contexts to discuss something that is perfect or complete or mature. Whereas Paul previously was discussing what spiritual maturity is and the end of the Christian life when we will be perfected, when we will mature fully to be like Christ, the end of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, to the other hand, is destruction. 
They were perhaps claiming perfection and maturity in this life, but they will only ultimately have destruction. He makes the same sort of reference in chapter 1, verse 28, where he talks about their destruction and our salvation. Well, their end is destruction, but also their God is their belly. This is a very descriptive term. It's very packed full of meaning. Their belly rules them, in other words. Their impulses, their desires, their cravings in the flesh is kind of the idea. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. He says, for the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God. And those who in the flesh cannot please God. Romans sixteen eighteen, he says, such men are slaves not to our Lord, but to their own appetites. Ephesians 2, 3, referring to the status of those who are outside of Christ, he says that they are living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the, of the mind. Their God is their belly. I think that some translations say their God is their appetite. Whatever they desire, they pursue, in other words. They indulge in the flesh and the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, we may scoff at the sexually immoral revolution that has taken place in our society, but it is, in fact, a very tangible expression of the description in its scripture. Their God is their belly. Whatever their flesh and their mind conceives of is now God. If they want to pursue same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage, because their flesh desires it, then it should be so. If they want to claim to be one gender today and another gender tomorrow or no gender at all, whatever is on their mind, whatever is in their hearts, they pursue that and it is so. If a woman who is pregnant, who did not get pregnant on her own, decides she doesn't want to be pregnant anymore, then it should be so. Their God is their belly. Listen, we all have desires for different things, right? We all have wants in life, but just because we have the desires, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it legitimate. And when you apply that logic to other things, which they fail to do, when you apply that logic that just because I feel it or because it feels right or it feels good, it should be so. If you apply that logic to other things, we know it doesn't really hold up. I mean, Vladimir Putin has the desire to have Ukraine as a part of Russia, right? But we all understand that that doesn't make it right. There are some people in the world, even in our nation, who don't like other ethnicities and go out of their way on shooting sprees to wipe them out. We understand the desire doesn't make it right. Still, there are others who have grievances, others who are otherwise disturbed mentally and so decide to pour their frustrations out again with the weapon, taking the lives of those who are around them, who have offended them at random. Again, the desire doesn't make it right. The logic of the world today is primarily regarding sexual desire. Whatever that desire is, it should be acted upon, that it is completely up to that individual and therefore is right. Again, their God is their appetite. But taking that to its logical conclusion and applying that logic to other things, we know that clearly it is not right. As we pursue Christ as a runner sprinting toward the finish line, so they pursue their God, the satisfaction of their appetites, with the same vehemence. Moving on, he says again, 
Their God is their appetite, but also they glory in their shame. We glory in Christ Jesus, Paul said earlier in this passage. We boast in him, we trust in him, we tell others about him. They glory in their shame. In other words, the shameful things that they pursue, again, their lifestyle, their life choices, they glory in those things, they boast in those things. They say, look at me, I'm living my best life now. You should celebrate with me. I'm doing whatever my flesh and my mind conceives of. You should be happy for me. You should join in. They boast in shameful things and compel others to do likewise. Again, isn't that what we see in the world today? Things that were shameful 20 plus years ago are now openly flaunted. And so much so that if you disagree, then you are the one who is shamed. You are the one who is ridiculed. You are rejected. Certainly there are things that I've said in this pulpit that I would likely be shamed and ridiculed for if certain people were to hear. Biblical Christianity, truths that biblical Christianity has held to for thousands of years are now being shamed and ridiculed. A couple of weeks ago, multiple articles broke concerning a school in Louisville, Texas, over an assignment that was given in a private Christian school by a middle teacher who was teaching a Bible elective. It was a Bible elective in a private Christian school, okay? And here are the parameters of the assignment. Assume that you have known a friend since kindergarten. You go to the same church and are good friends. The child is your age and is apparently struggling with homosexuality. They say the goal was to lovingly and compassionately speak truth to their friend in a way that clearly doesn't approve sin, but instead attempts to persuade them of the goodness of God's design for them. Lovingly and compassionately speaking truth to your friend who you've known since elementary school or kindergarten. And again, it's a Bible elective class in a Christian school. But one of the kids was bothered by that, and so they went and told their parent, and the parent was bothered by that, and so they told a friend. And this friend, who has zero connection other than being a friend of a friend, went to the, uh, the nearest newspaper that they could find and leaked the story about this home assignment. And as you can imagine, the purpose of this news story was essentially to shame this Christian school for upholding Christian truth. Again, truth that has been held by Christianity for thousands of years now as they're trying to encourage their students to make their faith real, to engage. But now they're being shamed as a school. And the desire is, to have them to change their course. But that's the way of the world. And certainly it won't stop there. It hasn't stopped there. Back to our text, though. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Lastly, he says, with minds set on earthly things. I think this final comment is really a summary statement of all that he just said. It's an overview of their lifestyle. The sum total of their lifestyle indicates that their minds are set on earthly things. They think they are mature, complete in their revelry, but their end is destruction. They may claim to worship no God, when in reality their God is their own appetite. They do not glory in Christ Jesus, but rather glory in shameful things. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, enemies who have their minds set on earthly things. Don't miss the significance of the mind in Pauline theology. He has repeated 
repeatedly spoken of the need to be of one mind in our pursuit of Christ so far in this letter. He's spoken of our need to rejoice in the Lord, to think on his goodness in such a way that brings joy. He's encouraged us to have the mind of Christ. He's going to, in the next verse, remind us of our heavenly citizenship and encourage us to think about the benefits. In chapter 4, we'll be reminded to think on things that are good and right and true in order to have joy. How we think in life is significant. The direction of our thoughts, where they ultimately lead, will speak volumes to what's in our hearts. Those whom Paul is desperately warning the church against have their minds set on earthly things. Things that are natural, earthly, in the world, of the world. Things destined for destruction. I referenced 2 Peter chapter 3 last week, where Peter reminds us that the earth and its works are going to be burned up. And he says, since you know that this is true, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Or 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the, pride of the, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these things are not from the Father, but are from the world. The world with its lusts are passing away, but those who do the will of God will abide forever. What determines the whole pattern of living of the opponents referred to in our passage is ultimately the sphere of sin. They're concerned with the things of the world, things that will ultimately pass away. How go your thoughts? You may remember a quote that I read to you last week which encouraged a deeper communion with Christ, pursuing Christ more, exhorting us to, as he said, Lay aside as much time for him in the day as you can. How do you do with laying aside as much time as you can for Jesus in the day, in your thoughts, in the way you think, in the things you meditate on? The error of those who disregard the upper call of God in Christ is that they have their minds set on earthly things. How about you? Well, instead of thinking of earthly things, what should we be thinking on? Again, this is the final point in our section. We are to consider the ultimate blessings of the upward call of God in Christ. Look back at verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Hear the contrast now. Their minds were set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. With their minds, while their minds are earthly, our minds ought to be heavenly. We ought to be considering the blessings of our heavenly citizenship. I've referred to Colossians chapter 3 before. If then you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There are benefits of being a citizen of heaven. Now, Paul has already introduced the idea of heavenly citizenship. I referred to this back in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul encouraged them to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And the idea there, again, is living as a citizen. Returning to the idea in chapter 3, Paul just comes out and says that we are citizens of heaven. Thus, we ought to live as citizens of heaven. We ought to think as citizens of heaven. Now, citizenship was as important in antiquity as it is today. Rome was the world power in their day. Thus, Roman citizenship was highly prized. 
Some went through great lengths to acquire it, even purchasing it if they could. There were special privileges of Roman citizenship, some of which Paul called on during his course, his ministry. Philippi, to which this letter was written, was a Roman colony, and thus its citizens were granted Roman citizenship, the privileges of being a citizen of Rome. This would be like us as Americans going to live in a place where there is land governed by the United States, but in a different part of the world, kind of like how our U.S. embassies work around the world. They're considered American soil. And when you're on American soil, though you may be in a completely different country geographically, you have all the rights and privileges of a citizen of the United States of America. Now, Paul is using their familiarity with the importance of citizenship here because the believers would have understood what it meant to be living away from their nation of citizenship. Again, Philippi was not in Rome, but they're still under its rule and deriving benefits from it. Paul is saying, in essence, yes, you are living here on earth, yet you are citizens of heaven with all the rights and privileges thereof. You should not regard yourself as merely citizens of the world, in other words. Your mind ought not to be on earthly things, but rather on heavenly things. Our citizenship in heaven ought to be our focus in life. We truly have a higher calling and a status that is greater than any earthly identity. Well, what are some of the characteristics of citizens of heaven? What ought to be true of us? Again, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Citizens of heaven look forward to the coming of their savior king. The word translated here, eagerly wait, in the original means to wait eagerly. It's to look expectantly for some future event. One author says it this way, the verb there expresses concentrated eagerness and persistence of expectation. It suggests an eye detached from every other object to watch only for him and when he comes in the fullness of his office. It's like the kid waiting for mom and dad to come home, right? Because they know there's going to be some some prize or some benefit that they're bringing. This word is used three times in Romans 8 to describe the anxious longing of both humanity as well as creation. Paul says, Therefore I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not on its own, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Paul says simply in Galatians 5, 5, we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. It is inherent in our salvation to have an eager longing for an anxious desire for the return of Jesus Christ. That is a part of who we are as 
we have the new birth. That is a part of being a part of the true vine. The new life produces in us not only a love for him, but a longing to see him. Faith, hope, and love are three constant characteristics of believers without which you cannot say that you are in the faith. Paul mentions those three, faith, hope, and love, in the first chapter of his letter to the Thessalonians. And he says about this church, when they came to faith in Christ, when they heard the gospel, that other people in the region said something peculiar about them. These were idol worshipers. But other people in the region, not even necessarily believers, but other people in the region had this testimony to say about the church after they came to faith in Christ. He says, they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I wonder if when others describe you, if they describe you as someone who's waiting for Jesus to come from heaven. Do they see you as one in whom there is hope, not just some empty, optimistic about life kind of hope, but a rock solid, confident assurance that Jesus is coming back and I'm looking forward to that day. We are to be eagerly waiting for him. In case it is not clear already, notice that the emphasis with respect to our eternal destiny is Jesus. It's not for heaven in general. The world has a concept of heaven in general, right? We hear about it. Their concept is something like their favorite vacation spot. Somewhere where there's no work. Maybe where there are people who wait on them hand and foot. Maybe they think that's what the angels are going to do. Everything is free. The air is clear. The water is nice to swim in. The sun is warm but not too hot. And again, all their appetites are satisfied. But the believer is not looking for a glorified vacation. We look forward to seeing Jesus. Paul makes this point emphatic by the two titles by which Jesus is named in this verse. We are eagerly awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called Savior. This should resonate with every true believer. To us, again, religion is not just about escaping the harsh realities of life. It's about a broken relationship between us and our creator. It's about sin that has damaged our relationship with our creator to the degree that now we are his enemies. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities or sins have made a separation between you and your God. This damage that sin makes us his enemies. The wages of sin is death, according to Romans six twenty three. And according to Ephesians 2, 3, we are now children of wrath. And that's what we deserve. But God is merciful. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, he saved us, not because of works we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We know that we can't do enough to resolve this difference between us and God. But we must trust in his salvation. And the salvation that he sends is the Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Jesus is not just some good teacher, not just some moral human being. He is to us a savior. Later in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, it says this, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He, having offered 
one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In another place it says that he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Peter says it this way in Acts chapter 4, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is our Savior. Back to the book of Philippians, no Jesus as Savior is a prerequisite for heavenly citizenship. We know no other. You must know and possess the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. In him alone. Jesus is the focus. By faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven on the basis of the offering of his body on the cross. His righteousness and eternal life are granted to us by faith. And thus we are given the status of heavenly citizens. We're not born into the citizenship. We cannot as... Some did in Rome purchase this citizenship. It is only granted by faith in Jesus Christ, purchased by the blood of his son. The invitation to become a citizen of this kingdom is open to all. It is open to you today if you have not come to faith in him, if you have not trusted in him. Humble yourselves today. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not granted. If there's anything that we've learned about the past few years... Anything that we should have learned about the past few years, it is that tomorrow is not granted. It is not yours. I trust in the Lord Jesus today. While his coming is a message of hope for the believer, for those who fail to submit to him now, there is no hope later, only, as he says in the book of Hebrews, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume his adversaries. Back again to our text, not only is he Savior, he's also Lord. Again, Philippians 3.20, we are eagerly awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Roman citizen would have confessed Caesar as both Savior and Lord. For Caesar was the victor who brought peace, the head of state, the supreme ruler of Rome. As American citizens, we are subject to our government, which is ultimately by the people. However, for the Christian, there's only one Savior. There's only one Lord. That is King Jesus. Paul has spent a significant amount of time in chapter 2 highlighting the exaltation of Jesus, even setting him forth as an example of humility. Why was the sacrifice of Jesus so effective in taking away sins? Why has all authority been given to him in heaven and on earth? Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you know what? If people have not bowed the knee to Jesus today, they will bow the knee to Jesus tomorrow. If he has to break their knees to humble them, that is what will happen. 
Jesus is the righteous one. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. He offered himself for sin because that is what his father wanted. His father has thus highly exalted him above all. That day is coming. When we see outrageous acts of sin and wickedness, wars and rumors of wars in the world around us, as we exclaim, what is the world coming to? We can remember this truth. The world is not out of control. All things are not out of hand. God is in control. God is still at work. God is moving all of the times of history, all of the history of humanity to this one point, to this one time, to this one day when Jesus rules and reigns as Lord over all. We're not looking for, as believers, a better president from our party. We're not looking for, as believers, a better ruler in place of some other wicked ruler in another nation. We're not hoping in better gun laws or for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. Our hope is in our coming king, Jesus. That he will soon return to make things straight which are crooked, all things right which are wicked. We look forward to the the day when our Savior, the Lord Jesus, will return to recreate the world into a place where righteousness dwells, where peace flows like a river, and when the whole earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the seas. We are citizens of heaven. As citizens of heaven, we are to be thinking on the benefits of our heavenly citizenship and living in light of these things. We are to be looking forward to the return of our Savior and King who will usher in a time of peace for the entirety of his creation. Again, citizens of heaven ought to look forward to the coming of their king, but we're also to look forward to our full redemption from our king. As I said previously, the fact that we will be like him is not only in the practical expression of righteousness, but also in our physical redemption. We will be like him, and we will enjoy the same glorification that Jesus in his humanity now enjoys as he sits down at the right hand of his father. Once again, verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I mentioned earlier, but what greater evil is there than death? At least sometimes it feels that way. Cancer, other forms of disease, war, famine, old age with the ensuing weakness of our bodies would all be more bearable if death were not always a present reality. Those things tend to weaken us, but more than that, they force us to reckon with our mortality. Ultimately, death is a product of a failure of our body on some level, whether through disease or disaster, aging or some accident, our bodies will fail us. If the Lord tarries, death will come to all of us. Even besides that, it affects us through various relationships. Husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, friends, neighbors, fellow church members, co-workers. Death is separation of us from one to another, and it is always painful. 
if God was real and if God cared, he would do something about it. This verse is a reminder that he has done something about it. Again, verse 21, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We all know what it means to transform something. You are changing it from one form to another. The word transform here is where we get our word schematic from. We think about a schematic diagram of electrical cables or other wiring that shows you how something is made up, its constitution, its structure. The emphasis here is that the scheme of our body will be transformed from its humble state into a glorious state, the glorious state of the body of the Lord Jesus. The humble state of our body is also not hard to understand, right? Our bodies, as we already stated, are subject to death. They're weak. They're frail. They're subject to disease and distress. I woke up this morning and my hand was hurting. Why? I have no idea. My hand was just hurting. Like it was legitimately hurting. And so I got up and put ice on it this morning. We feel that at times. We get those aches and pains. And I know that many of you all know that a lot more than I do. Sometimes for the believer, the burden of our weakness is intensified because in our hearts we know that there is something better for us. I mentioned Romans 8 earlier. There Paul talks about the groaning that we experience as we wait for our redemption. Also in 2 Corinthians 5, For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. I long for the day when what is mortal is swallowed up by life. What is really life? You know, many of our brothers and sisters get to this point toward the ends of their lives, particularly if they've suffered much due to some illness or accident. They groan, longing to be clothed with immortality. I remember... I can't remember now if it was my grandmother or my great-grandmother or a great-aunt, but being by her bedside at her home many, many years ago with my family all there standing around her, and we were there with her because we knew that the end was near. And she was very weak, but she was able to speak up, and she said to us, I know that someone here is praying for me to get better, but I'd like for you to stop because I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to be with my Lord. And that has always stuck with me. That kind of faith. She said, I'm ready to go home. We feel that. Our bodies are weak and frail at times. And we feel that. The reality is that our bodies need to be transformed because they are weak because they are frail, because they are still burdened with the effect and influence of sin. Our deacon Chris read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We must be changed. It's not just that we want to, we must be in order to be able to inherit the kingdom of God. This has to happen as citizens of the kingdom to enter the kingdom. Our bodies as they are now are not fit for heaven. 
But when they are changed, he describes it this way, the perishable shall be raised imperishable. These bodies which are dishonorable shall be raised in glory. These bodies which are sown in weakness shall be raised in power, sown as a natural body, but raised as a spiritual body. And death will finally be swallowed up in victory. Paul taunts death in that passage. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You have nothing on us because of our faith in the Lord Jesus. This is the privilege of citizens of heaven. We are going to be made in the likeness and glory and strength of our king. The God-man Jesus walked about in this life in weakness as we do daily. He suffered as we do. He died physically and felt the pain. And yet he was raised in power. He shared in the weakness of our flesh so that we also might share in the power of his resurrection. This is the full redemption that we look for with eagerness. The text says that he will do this, verse 21, by the same power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Jesus has power to subject all things to himself. And all things means just that, all things. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. All things will be brought into subjection to him on that day. We sang earlier, let all the moons and all the stars and all the universe, all of God's creation will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. He has the power to make that happen. Perhaps this is one final dig at Caesar of Rome while he boasted, of having subjugated the entire known world of men, Christ has the power to bring all things into subjection to him. Nothing will be left out. And because we know that this is true, we also know that he's able to provide this final redemptive act for us. Because we know that he can bring, he can and will bring all things into subjection to himself, we know also that he is able to transform our lowly bodies, our weak, frail disease-prone bodies into the glory of his powerful resurrection. Is God real? Does he care? Will he do something about the atrocities that happen every day, about the death that so many face? If you are a citizen of heaven, the answer to these questions has to be emphatically yes. Yes, our God is real. Yes, our God cares. Yes, He will do something about the atrocities we face daily. He has done something already by sending the Lord Jesus into the world to save us first from the power of sin, giving new life to those who have faith in him. But also when he comes again, his promise is to save us from the presence of sin and to give us a new glorified body. Remember, beloved, that this whole section starting with chapter 3, was written for their joy. Paul started, rejoice in the Lord. He warns them, watch out for evil workers who set their minds on earthly things. But you set your mind on heavenly things, on your heavenly citizenship, on the privileges of being a citizen of heaven, on your coming king. Set your mind on him. Rejoice in him. There are times in life when joy is a struggle, when we experience pain for long stretches of time, When we experience loss, when we look around at the wickedness of the world, we're tempted to despair. In those times, we need to think on what is true and work on remembering what is true and who is true. God is at work in the world. 
The church is evidence of that. You are evidence of that. We are evidence of that. We belong to Jesus. We belong to the one who is Savior and Lord. We are citizens of his kingdom. In the end, Jesus will win and he will be acknowledged as Lord over all. He has not abandoned us. He has promised to return specifically for us. And to bring his reward with him. Death cannot have you. Because you belong to him. We know the world around us is wrought with those whose minds are set on earthly things and yet who have questions that they desperately want answers for and cannot find in the world. Who does care? Why evil? What's being done with it? Beloved, you have the answers. I would exhort and encourage each of you to tell somebody about it. Tell someone of the hope that you have in Jesus. Tell someone of the one who you are waiting for. The one whose return you know will make every crooked thing straight in this world. The one who when he returns will give you something glorious. That they're invited to have as well. And they trust in him. Set your heart on the upward call of God in Christ, beloved. Sprint towards that day by faith in his promises, seeking after his righteousness. Labor together with others. Be on guard against those whose minds are set on earthly things. And particularly, when life is hard and death looms, remember the grace that is going to be brought to you in that day. We will be like him. Our humble, weak, frail bodies today will be glorified anew tomorrow. Weeping may endure for the night, but the morning will come. That is his promise. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this day once again. We thank you for the blessed hope that we have, the blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is coming. Come, Lord. Come quickly. As we wait for you, remind us of this truth, bolden us, embolden us to speak this truth, to tell it on the mountains, that we have victory in Jesus, the one who is Savior and King, and that we look forward to his coming. Help us to trust in him and in him alone for his glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.